So, I want you to get up now. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Welcome to the Vexing Rebel Podcast. I'm your host, Kurt, the Vexing Rebel. Today I'd like to talk to you about justice. True justice is founded upon the principle that man has an inherent God-given right to life, liberty, and property, and that he cannot be denied them without due process, held to account for an infraction against natural law. In my previous podcast, I have talked about natural law and natural rights. I've explained to you what they are and uh, given you kind of a, a general idea of where I'm coming from. I'd like to expand on that just a little bit for a moment. Think about the four foundational natural rights. Your right to life, liberty, to acquire and use property, and your right to defend your rights. Think about life for a moment. Without life, nothing else matters. Existence is the foundation of all things. Liberty, that's the foundation of your ability to control your own life and strive to shape your own destiny. Property. The basis of human happiness, stability, prosperity, advancement, and freedom of contract. The foundation of a free society. And defense. The mechanism by which we secure and protect our rights. As Samuel Adams stated, Among the natural rights of the colonists are these. First, a right to life. Secondly, to liberty. Thirdly, to property. Together with the right to support and defend them in the best manner they can. These are evident branches of, rather than deductions from, the duty of self-preservation, commonly called the first law of nature. And of course what he's referring to there is not the law of the jungle or what have you. He's referring to natural law. And as we've discussed in previous podcasts, natural law is written into the hearts and minds of just and reasonable men. This is contrasted with the positivist view of rights and laws. A positivist believes that law and rights are granted or assigned by government. But keep in mind that what a government grants, the government can take away. There are also those out there that believe in rights that are not really rights at all. And I refer to these as artificial rights. Think about this for a moment. As opposed to a natural right, an artificial right is an imagined or falsely perceived right to something, often based on a goal or aspiration, that requires the imposed action of the state to provide. Examples of artificial rights include, but are not limited to, a right to housing, a right to health care, a right to an education, a right to not be discriminated against, a right to welfare, a right to a job, a right to a minimum wage, a right to a standard of living. You see, simply by existing, you hold all of your natural rights with you. No intervention is required in order for you to enjoy your rights. In fact, intervention by others actually causes your natural rights to face infringement. Conversely, an artificial right requires the intervention of a third party, more often than not, at the expense of the rights of others. Consider this. In order for the government to provide someone with their right to a house, they would have to provide a house for someone who was homeless or actually houseless. Now, how would the government do that? In order for the government or some other entity to provide to the houseless person a home, they would have to take the money to pay for it from another person or force someone to otherwise build or provide for the houseless individual. In other words, the government would have to tread upon your property and or liberty in order to secure the artificial right of another. 
Of course, if we see or hear of someone who's in need, we want to diminish their suffering. But we have to be careful and not let our desire for an outcome to replace our reason. If we see someone in need, we don't need to turn around and harm or create suffering for another individual in order to correct the problem. Like my parents have always said, two wrongs don't make a right. This is where charity comes in. The difference between charity and providing for an artificial right is vast. Charity occurs when someone of their own volition chooses to help or give versus being forced to provide for another. As John Adams so aptly put it, you have rights antecedent to all earthly governments, rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws, right derived from the great legislator of the universe. Keep in mind, and it's very important that you remember this, legislation and constitutions be damned, no person or entity acting on his behalf, such as a government, has the right to tread upon your natural rights. Know it. Repeat it. Live by it. Again, allow me to quote Samuel Adams. Quote, Just and true liberty, equal and impartial liberty, in matters spiritual and temporal, is a thing that all men are clearly entitled to by the eternal and immutable laws of God and nature. End quote. In the scheme of things, there is a hierarchy within the system of justice. First and foremost, there is God. Those who do not subscribe to the idea of God can refer to this by whatever makes them comfortable. You can call it fate, the universe, happenstance, it doesn't matter. But as for me, and many other natural law proponents, I'll just stick with calling him God. Those who do subscribe to the notion of God contend that God is the creator and master of all things. He cannot be held to account for anything except for himself. You do not have to hold this view to continue. Second in the hierarchy is natural law and due process. Natural law and due process are only answerable to God. Next comes natural rights and man. Natural rights and man are intertwined as a single entity, answerable to natural law and due process and ultimately to God. Then at the very bottom of this hierarchy is government. Government is instituted by man for his benefit and is answerable to him. No one can give a power that they do not possess to any other person or entity, including governments. We don't have the right to murder, and we cannot hire someone to do it for us. We're still guilty of being involved in that murder. We cannot incarcerate someone without due process. We don't have the power to trample upon the rights of others, and we cannot hire someone or elect someone to do it either. All right, with that in mind, once again the hierarchy is God, then natural law and due process, then natural rights and man, and then government at the bottom. Now, true justice, natural justice, dictates that we adhere to this hierarchy and follow the fundamental principle that justice should be fair, done, and seen. In other words, we, as a society, through our established government or whatever method we use, must respect and protect an individual's natural rights while holding him accountable for an infraction against natural law. And society must be aware that this took place. In order to bring about natural justice, we must adhere to the following principles. Number one, the accused must be considered innocent of any wrongdoing until the accuser can prove otherwise. This right does not go away simply because the accused is a jerk or he just doesn't look right or because he's accused of some heinous crime that makes you cringe and so forth. In a free society, we must come to the table with the understanding that the burden of proof lies upon the accuser. Number two, 
A person accused of a crime must be given proper and reasonable notice of the charges, the evidence, and witnesses against him. Arrest should not be used as a fishing expedition in which to lure and bait evidence from a suspect or a means to intimidate someone into a confession. Anyone accused of any wrongdoing has the absolute right to be told what he is accused of and by whom. Number three, the accused must be made aware of the time, place, rules, and the manner of proceedings that will be utilized for his trial. The proceedings must be relatively uniform and reasonable in their functions. Kangaroo courts are not dens of justice, I can guarantee you that. Number four, the accused must be able to present his own evidence and witnesses. Both sides have a story to tell, not just the supposed victim. Number five, there must not be any undue delay in hearing the matter at hand. Letting someone rot in a cell or island hideaway is a major infringement of his natural rights. The Founding Fathers were full aware of this and thus enshrined habeas corpus into the Constitution for the United States. Number six, the accused must be tried by an impartial judge and an impartial jury of his peers. Too often, people misconstrue this to mean that potential jurors must somehow be completely unaware of what is going on around them. This is untrue. It simply means that the judge and jury should have no premeditation or a vested interest in seeing the verdict fall in one direction or the other. Number seven, the judge and jury must act in good faith and cannot be one of the parties of the case or otherwise have a conflict of interest. Number eight, the judge must take into account relevant considerations and extenuating circumstances and ignore irrelevant considerations. Relevance is determined on a case-by-case basis, dependent upon the nature of the charges and the defense the accused must submit. For example, if a prostitute screams rape and the accused rapist's defense is that he merely did not pay the amount of money that the prostitute charged, it is possible, keyword possible, that the case is not in fact rape but a contract dispute. On the other hand, if a prostitute witnesses a murder, her testimony should not be discounted by her profession. It is not as if being a prostitute has somehow caused her eyes to malfunction. Number nine, both sides must be heard with an opportunity for both sides to correct or contradict any statement or presentment of evidence prejudicial to their case. A true justice system seeks fairness. Number 10, each side must be heard in the presence of the other. Number 11, different allegations by different accusers against the same defendant should be heard separately in other trials. Number 12, conviction in a criminal trial should be upon the unanimous decisions of the jury who should be beyond all reasonable doubt. The findings in a civil trial should be upon the balance of probabilities. In other words, a consensus among the jurors is sufficient and they do not have to be beyond a reasonable doubt. Number 13, the penalties applied to those found guilty should not be cruel or unusual, but should be fitting to the crime. Yes, a swift execution is a reasonable punishment for the most heinous of crimes. Another consideration is this. Punishment of a defendant should not be viewed as a money-making venture for the government. Penalties imposed upon someone convicted of a crime are supposed to accomplish two things. Number one, punish him and to provide restitution to the victim. Yes, it is reasonable that legal fees should be paid by the guilty party in criminal or civil cases, but too often in today's society, fines are used as another form of taxation by the government. Number 14. Justice should be seen to be done by society and should reasonably satisfy their faith in the courts. Number 15. Once a man has been held to account for his infractions, he is absolved of his crime. This is vital in a free society. If someone makes a mistake, no matter how egregious, once they've been tried and paid their price, they are done. It doesn't matter how much someone else may not like it. It doesn't matter how unfair someone thinks it is. We as a society have no right to torment that person for the rest of his life. 
For example, and I know this is going to upset some people, but think about this not emotionally, but reasonably and logically. Let us say, for the sake of argument, that a 25-year-old man has consensual sex with a 16-year-old girl and is convicted of statutory rape. Because our society has become so intolerant of crimes against children, and because our society feels that our justice system is lacking, the convicted not only pays his debt, but is forced to be placed in a database along with debased individuals who defile prepubescent children. Everywhere he turns for the rest of his life, this man will have his natural rights stomped upon. He will be dictated to where he can go, where he can live, who he can be with, and so on. This is not justice. This is an abomination of justice. Too many people want to look at these issues from an emotional perspective. They need to look at it as if they were just and reasonable people, which is the foundation of the application of natural law. If the justice system is broke, fix it. Don't try and even things out legislatively. When you're trying to establish a system of justice, the foundational goal of the court system is to see to it that justice, not pettiness, prevail. The consideration of the natural rights of not only the victim, but the accused must be paramount. Okay, we've already discussed what your rights are. We've discussed what natural law is. We've now talked a little bit about, you know, true justice. Our next consideration must be the application of true law. Dismissing infraction against laws whose applications violates the people's natural rights. Tyrannical laws are not laws, but usurpations of liberty, dressed with the color of law. They are without merit and are null and void. Now, what do I mean by color of law? Okay, according to Black's Law Dictionary, the color of law is the appearance or semblance of law without the substance of legal right. Misuse of power possessed by virtue of state law and made possible only because the wrongdoer is clothed with the authority of the state. You also have to concern yourself with legal fictions. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, a legal fiction is a rule assuming as true something that is clearly false. A fiction is often used to get around the provisions of constitutions and legal codes that legislators are hesitant to change or to encumber with specific limitations. With that in mind, true law has to stem from the two foundational natural laws of keep your promises and do not tread upon your neighbor. True and rightful laws have certain criteria they must meet. First, does it adhere to natural law? And I'm talking about does it adhere to the foundational natural laws? Second, does it violate natural rights? If the answer to those questions is no, then you can proceed. Okay, further criteria. Every valid law must also have an enacting clause that tells you by what authority a law is being implemented. An enacting clause or an enacting formula is a clause that establishes the authority by which the law can be enforced. In the United States, the Supreme Court has ruled that any law which lacks an enacting clause is null and void. For example, God said to Moses, You shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Leviticus 22.31 God gave an enacting clause. He told Moses the authority by which the commandments would be enacted was the authority of God. A government uh, could do the same thing by writing something such as, by the authority of the state of Texas given by consent of the people, followed by what the law was. Furthermore, you need to know if a law applies solely to an artificial person, or in other words, a corporation. If you're not a corporation, then the law does not apply to you as a natural person. Now, what do I mean? The law does not apply to you as a natural person. You see, there are actually two types of persons, natural and artificial, at least according to common law. 
According to Blackstone's commentary on the laws of England, which was the Bible of law for the colonists and America up until the reign of Lincoln. Anyway, according to Blackstone's commentary on the laws of England, quote, persons also are divided by the law into either natural persons or artificial. Natural persons are such as the God of nature formed us. Artificial are such as created and devised by human laws for the purpose of society and government, which are called corporations or bodies politic. Note, corporate persons are also called juristic persons. The next criteria that must be made is the power to prosecute. For a person to be prosecuted before the law, the court must have the power to prosecute. In order to prosecute you, the court must have personal jurisdiction, the court's power over the individual, or in rem jurisdiction, power over an item or property. They must have subject matter jurisdiction, the power of the court to render a decision on the subject at hand. The courts also have to give proper notification. The court has an obligation to notify the defendant in a case that he is the subject of. If these criteria are not met, then the defendant is being unjustly prosecuted. And lastly, you must understand the power and function of an oath. An oath is a binding contract to fulfill an obligation or future action, and or to pledge the truth of one's statements, and punishment is due to one who breaks his oath. An oath upon something you hold sacred, such as God, is to bind that sacred thing as witness to your pledge, and to face retribution by that sacred thing upon the breaking of that oath. To break an oath sworn to man is a crime. To break an oath sworn to man bound to God is not only a crime against man, but is a crime against God as well. I'll give you an example from the Declaration of Independence. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Failure to uphold their pledge or oath would be to lose their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor. In a true justice system, all of these factors have to be put in place. But the final thing, probably one of the most important parts of it, is a jury. A jury is vital in ensuring freedom and protecting against government tyranny. According to Black's Law Dictionary, quote, A jury is a body of persons temporarily selected from the citizens of a particular district and invested with the power to present or indict a person for a public offense or to try a question of fact, end quote. Thomas Jefferson stated, quote, I consider trial by jury as the only anchor yet devised by man by which a government can be held to the principles of its constitution, end quote. The responsibilities of a jury go hand in hand with true justice. Juries are to judge the spirit, motive, and intent of both the law and the accused. Juries must pass judgment in a case based solely on the evidence, with the burden of proof being upon the accuser. A jury must acquit if conviction would go against their deep-seated sense of morality and justice. This touches on the subject of jury nullification. I will get into more detail on jury nullification in another podcast. Moving on. A jury must see to it that a conviction in a criminal trial must occur when the entire jury is beyond a reasonable doubt of the guilt of the accused. And awards in a civil case may come upon a majority vote of the jury based upon the balance of probabilities. All of these factors, all of them, play an instrumental role in securing justice. And true justice is absolutely vital to a free society. A free society is absolutely vital to the limitless possibilities of man. 
This is Kurt, the Vexing Rebel, signing out. Follow the Vexing Rebel podcast on Twitter at The Vexing Rebel. Like us on Facebook and check out our YouTube channel. We will post a new podcast every Friday.